This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you are in here, let's open your Bibles to Jude. This is our last week in Jude. It's the second Sunday of Advent, but we are finishing Jude. We start an Advent series next Sunday in the Gospel of John that, Lord willing, takes us through much of, if not the entire 2023 year. So we're in this little book one more week, and I have to tell you, I have loved preaching this book. It has come alive for me over the last couple of months. I hope it has for you as you have listened to these sermons, and I hope thought about them some. I hope read this book for yourself. If you haven't read it yet, the average reader can read this in four minutes. I am a below average reader when it comes to speed. It takes me about six. You can go home and read this book by your fire or with a coffee or a hot chocolate or a whatever this afternoon. And I think the more you read this, the more it comes alive for you. So do that today. Now we're in these last two verses. And even if you haven't read this book, I think these are the two that probably are the most familiar to Christians. We often just call them the doxology. In fact, in in your Bible, there might just be a little uh, notation above it that says doxology or the doxology or something like this. Now, historically, what a doxology is, is it's a hymn or it's a, a proclamation of praise that comes at the end of a time of worship. And so the title makes sense here. It's a a hymn of praise that comes at the end of Jude. But let's not dismiss this. Let's not just say, well, this is just kind of some concluding remarks, you know, before the people head out to brunch. We're here to get more out of this letter. Jude has more to teach us. And I think like the whole letter, the longer we stare at it, this is what's happened for me this past week. The longer I stare at these last two verses... They have become, for me, not just what comes at the end, not just some closing thoughts, but I see more than ever that there's enough in these two verses to undergird an entire theology of truth and of grace and of the sovereign splendor of God. In two verses, you can do all that of these, just these two verses. And so that's what I want to do in response to just kind of what I've seen here over the last week. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read it. And then I'm just going to do my best to simply hold out what's being said here and to tell you why I think it was written. And then what I want to do is just invite us into an ongoing worship around these. So this is a doxology in the sense that it comes at the end of Jude, but it's an invitation to ongoing praise. What what we do here, what we're going to read here, is intended to be praise forever and ever and ever. So in one sense, it comes at the end. Think of it in another sense, like this comes at the beginning. And so have your Bible open. If you didn't bring one, use the uh, hardback black one in the pew in front of you. And let's look at Jude 24, 25. Put your own eyes there as I read this for us. So it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, 
and forever. Amen. We should all say amen to that. Amen. That's so good. So let's, let, me just, let me just kind of roll these. This is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to hold these out for us. So now, it says now. And, and other than the fact that we're close to the end, why is Jude saying now to this God we ascribe glory? And the answer to why, this com- why he says now is based on everything he has said up until this point in his letter. He started the letter by saying that his hope and in, in his plan was to write to them a letter that would build them up. But based on what these Christians are facing, which is false teachers, spiritually dangerous people have come in among these early Christians, he has instead recognized that what they need, what he needs to do, is to write them a serious letter of warning. And within that warning, to put a call to courage, to do what he says is to contend for the gospel. That's in verse three. So in the middle part of the letter then, what Jude does is he he begins and says, I wanted to do this, but I have to do this. And in the middle part of the letter, Jude writes what we are contending against. If you're gonna fight something, you have to know what you're fighting against. And he says, there's at least three things that have crept into the church. Not just then, but have been a part of the people of God, we're a part of the people of God at this point and will continue to be a part of the people of God. And he says it's, it's this. It's people who ignore the word of God. People who defy the authority of God. And people who reject the holiness of God. So people who ignore the word of God. People who defy the authority of God. And people who reject the holiness of of God. And again, these aren't people from someplace out there. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 of this letter. It's probably on the same page. For certain people have crept where? They've crept in unnoticed. And he says they're ungodly people. If there's any question about what he means by ungodly, they're destined for condemnation. You, You can't say it more clearly than that. These people aren't just mistaken. They're not just unhelpful. That's too soft. They will lead you toward destruction. So contend against them and what they bring. Jude's call here is to fight. There's a call to arms. It's a call to action. And it takes you the middle part of his letter just to tell them what they're fighting against. And before he begins to tell us in verse 17 not only what we're fighting against, but then we make this turn at verse 17, under Christ, under whom we will prevail, he says, this is how you fight. And so we we did this last week. The key phrase in the whole letter, the, the center point of the whole letter comes in verse 21. The turn From what you're fighting against to what you're fighting for is at verse 17. The key phrase is at 21. Look at 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. It's the point of the whole book. And the the way to see that that's the point of the whole book, and I want you to see this, it's so so important to see this in, in Judah. If you pull on that thread of the word keep, what you'll see is the whole book began begin to get involved. 
So look at that word keep. If you just kind of trace it, this is what we're being told. In verse 1, we're told that those God loves are kept for Jesus Christ. That's verse 1. Those God, those God loves are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, in contrast to those God loves being kept for Christ, look at verse 6. Those who reject his authority are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the, day, until the judgment of the great day. Same idea, jump down to verse 13. There are those who blaspheme God. It's all the way back in verse 10. These are blasphemers. And in verse 13, very similar to verse 6, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them forever. Now you'd say reserved isn't the word kept. It is if you read Greek. The same Greek word for kept in verses 1 and 6 is that word translated reserved probably in your Bible in verse 13. So it's in 1, it's in 6, it's in 13. Now we're back in 21. Again, keep yourself, same word, in the love of God. And then as if he anticipates the question, how do I keep myself in God's love? This is what he does in, in 20, 21, 22, 23. He just rolls off this list of imperatives. I want you to see these things because it's, it builds how we're going to work in 24 and 25. So how do you keep yourselves in the love of God? If that's the whole point of the book, it's the whole center of the book, what do you do? Well, verse 20 says, build one another up in your most holy faith. So encourage one another. Verse 20 also says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 says, wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting on the Lord is resting in him. So have peace in him. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. And we said last week when we worked in that verse, that we're told that actually spiritual people have mercy on doubters because one, we were once unbelievers. And two, for us to say that we never have any doubts of our own is not only arrogant, it's, it's wildly hypocritical. So spiritual people will have mercy on those who doubt because they were once unbelievers. They are sometimes doubters. Verse 23, save others by snatching them from the fire of hell. In verse 22, one more time, one last thing. It says that even as you see sin, this is what verse 22 is saying, don't be afraid to call it out, but be humble while you do. That's how you keep yourselves in the love of God. And this week, there's one final keep. See how we pulled that thread through the letter in verse 24. For it is God who is able to keep you from stumbling and to bring you into glory with him. Jude's point is this. whole point of the letter is this. Those who are kept for Christ know what an incredible work God has done for them. And so now they want their entire lives to be a reflection of his glory. If you are in Christ, you should know the incredible thing that God has given you. And it only makes sense that you would want every bit of your life to reflect his glory. That's our faith. That God has done more for us than we could ever deserve. He could. You see this in the letter. He could have kept us from himself. But instead, he promises to keep us for himself. And now our highest aim and our greatest joy is to make much of him. Again, remember why Jude wrote the letter. Look back 
One more time, verse, verse three. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Actually, I think in reading verse three, having studied the book, coming back to 24 and 25, what I think we can fairly say is that Jude has done both. He teaches us how to contend for the faith, but the way he does that is to talk about our common salvation. That's how you win people. If you want to convert somebody, don't tell them everything they have to leave behind. Tell them everything they have before them. That's how you win people. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Very end of the Chronicles of Narnia are the Pevensey children with a few other people. If you've seen the lion or read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know Peter, Edmund, and Lucy Pevensey. Susan no longer believes in Narnia by the end. That's a whole other thing. It's really sad. But the Pevensey children stand at the edge of, of Aslan's country. And they ask him, well, what is this country like? And the way that Aslan explains his country is by saying it's a truer version of Narnia. The Narnia that they had known, and even the Narnia that they had loved, was broken, was not as it was intended to be, and so he invites them into a complete Narnia. And then once they're inside of his country, they see that it goes on and on forever. In fact, the way that the last battle is written, the end of the book is that it says they go up and up and up forever and ever and ever with, and they run faster, but they see that it goes farther and they see that the mountains are higher and their speed increases, but as, as they run faster, so the distance expands, so the hills get higher. That's what Jude's doing. That's what Jude is doing here. He's saying our common salvation brings us to a truer version of life, a higher, farther, deeper version than we would have ever otherwise thought possible. And the more you know of it, the more you want it. And the more you want it, the more you are given of it. And so this is how he concludes his letter. He gives us one verse of what God has done for us, and one verse of what a better, truer life will be for us if we give it to God. So one verse of what he gives us, one verse of what it's our joy for him to receive. So you could say it like this. Uh, verse 24 is what God accomplishes in us so that, we so that we can contend for the faith in this life. And verse 25 is what he keeps us for so that we can join him in doing this forever. So I just want to take these verses one at a time, look at them, roll them over, hold them out, celebrate together. Look, look one more time at, at, at 24. I just want to read this for us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. First thing, look who this is directed towards. To him who is able to keep you. Church, everything in the Christian life is Godward. Everything. To God we look, in him we hope, to him we cling. Coming off of verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. 
The simplest answer to how do we do that, I read you that list, but the simplest answer to how do we keep ourselves in the love of God is resting by resting in the solid promise that he's the one keeping you. If you wonder, how do I keep myself in the love of God? I would simply say, by believing that he won't let you go. I can still uh, pick up my youngest daughter. And as I walk with her in my arms and hold her, sometimes she will start you know, to slip down a little bit and she'll yell out, Daddy, Daddy, I'm slipping, I'm falling. And I, tell, I always tell her, kind of as a joke, I just say, then you better hold me tight, otherwise you know, you're going to fall. But here's what's really going on. I'm never going to drop my daughter. I am in control of that situation. I have her. She might feel like she's slipping a little bit, but I'm not going to release my grip on her. If it seems like you're slipping, cling to God, but Christian, know that he's not going to let you go. He will not let you fall. He is keeping you And his grip is a vice. You can't slip out of the love of God. You can't slip out of the hug of God. He's got you. And what is he keeping you from? From stumbling. Now, if you've been reading Jude, you you will know, again, what, what Jude is warning us about is not something abstract that he sees maybe the possibility of somewhere on the horizon if things kind of go poorly. He's telling us that not only do we need to watch out for the ungodly, unbelieving, immoral people because they might try to sneak in among us, he's saying that is the pattern that God's people have always had to deal with. There have always, for thousands of years among the people of God, been ungodly, unbelieving, immoral people that have come in and tried to pervert the grace and the mercy and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so all of his warnings, that he doesn't have to work in the theoretical. Every one of the warnings that Jude uses in the middle of this book are from history. They're real people who did real things, well known to these early Christians. So what Jude's readers are asking What I would ask, if somebody just constantly was telling me, Christians fall away, Christians, people who claim to be Christians, people who claim to be Christians have these problems, the people of God are, the, the, the history of God is littered with these people who've had problems. One of the questions that I would ask that would be on the tip of my tongue would be, am I going to stumble? Am I going to fall away? Is this what's coming for me? Listen, a lot of us are probably asking that question just from our own lives. We're asking what hope is there for us. Many of you know somebody. For a lot of us, it's, it's sadly, it's somebody know, we know very well. It's maybe even somebody that we, we love who looked like they had genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And they've since Stumbled. And because it's, it's personal to us, we're reeling from it. We see the, the hurt and the brokenness in their life from it. Maybe it's somebody that we've looked up to. Maybe it's somebody who had a huge spiritual impact on you. Maybe you've known them from far away, maybe really up close. 
Maybe even live with them. But at one point, they looked like they were with God and now stumbled. If that's you, it probably leaves you with two questions. Again, one, what happens to that person? And two, will I stumble? I think I can answer both questions together. What happens to that person and will I stumble? Both of them have the same answer. People who are truly kept by Jesus won't stumble. And the only way to be kept by Jesus is to keep close to him. So here's what you do. You plead with people who have left our common faith. You hope that they they were once secure because the promise is here. Church, the promise is here. God, if, if they were with Christ, God will bring them back. They, it might appear as though they have slipped off a little bit. But God will not let them go. And as for you, the question of will I stumble, as for you, stay with Jesus. Grab hold of Jesus. Here's how you do that. Stay under his word. You let it read you. Don't try to manipulate it so that you like what it says. Stay under his word. Stay constant in prayer. Constantly submitting yourself under God and his word. Constantly going to him in prayer has a way of creating a dependence on him that's clinging like glue. Cling to Christ. And then do these things that we talk about now in verse 24, we'll talk about it in a minute in verse 25, but one more phrase from verse 24. It says, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God can do that. He can keep you from stumbling and he can present you blameless before him, not because of what you bring, but because of what he gave. This word blameless It's closely linked to another biblical word, and and that is the word unblemished. The problem is, the problem for God's people always has been that to be with him, we need to be unblemished. We need to be blameless. But because of our sin, and I think I'm going to invent a word right now, because of our sin, we're not blameless, we're blameful. Doubt that's a word. I just invented it. By ourselves, we can never be blameless. God's remedy to that has always been blood. Specifically, the remedy to our blameful condition, to make us blameless, to take our blemishes and make us unblemished, has always been the blood of something innocent, unblemished, shed in the place of us who are full of blame. Uh, You might know the book of Leviticus as the book that's all about laws and sacrifices. Now, it's about more than that, but it is a big big part of the book is laws and sacrifices. And it's not an accident that in the third verse of the whole book, we find these words, setting up Leviticus, it says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, starting off, this is, this is chapter 1, verse 3. He shall offer a male without 
blemish. So all of what's going to come after in Leviticus is kind of built on this idea that a blood sacrifice from something without blemish is necessary for the forgiveness and the atonement of somebody who's very full of blame. And nothing substantial in that has really changed. We're still marked and we still need blood to be presented blameless before God. For us, thanks be to God that he has made a better way than the blood of goats and rams. Jesus was the unblemished offering. He was righteous and holy and through his death, when his blood was shed, God was making a way for our blame to be taken off of us and carried away. And that's the invitation of God for every single person. Be made blameless through Christ and therefore be ready to be be ready to be in his presence. Be ready to be in the presence of God. And that all of that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus died for you, you will be acceptable to your heavenly father by and because and through the blood of Jesus. And so do, do you see what I mean? I mean, just these, these words right here, I started out by saying you could build an entire theology of the miraculous work and the sovereign grace of God on this, and I've only done half a sentence. I've only done half a sentence that we've in our verses this morning. There is enough here to worship for a lifetime with. But there's more, and I'm going to do it very quickly. So let's just look at this last verse, last verse of the letter. Uh, to understand the last verse, you have to understand, you have to know one, see one simple truth. The simple truth is this worshiping God is the greatest thing you could ever hope to do. You have to know that there is nothing better that you could ever do in all your life, in all the universe, throughout all time, than to worship God. And if you don't see that, that being invited into the family of God, therefore being invited into this vast congregation of people who praise God, is the greatest thing that you could ever be called into and, and kept for, then you won't understand why these verses are special. You have to know that to see this. But on the other hand, if you know that, if you see that, if you do that, these should be some of your very favorite verses. Uh, so let me, just, let me just say what I said a different way. There's no more fantastic privilege than worshiping God. But let me say it a different way. The greatest injustice happening in the world today, and there are many terrible things happening, Poverty, corruption, greed, exploitation, violence, all horrible things. But the greatest injustice today and every day is that God is not worshipped everywhere and in every place by everyone. Because the most true, just, righteous thing that could be done in all the world is to give glory and praise to and proclaim the majesty of God. And for that not to happen, not just everywhere, but for that not to happen somewhere, in someone is the greatest injustice happening every day. And things won't be fully right until he is receiving the fullness of the praise he's worthy of. 
things aren't fully right until he's receiving his full praise. And that's why Jude ends this way. If everything he said up to this point in this letter is true, then the only way to end is with worship. The only, way, the only way that actually all of this ends has to be worship. It's true at the end of the letter, but it has to be true at the end of the universe. We can't end this place. This place can't come to a rightful conclusion until only God's praise remains. So remember how I said that, that the thread that, that runs through the letter is God keeping some for himself, and we also said that part of that thread when we pull it is seeing that those who refuse to put their faith in God and obey him have to be kept away from him. That's verse 6 and that's verse 13. That's how this world one day ends. Those who are in the love of God will be with him forever and ever and ever. And those who do not love him are separated from his love forever and ever and ever. So give your life to the glory of God because you want to be in his love. Give your life to the glory of God because he's keeping you in his love. The English preacher George Whitfield, who, who preached in the, in the middle part, in the, the latter part of the 1700s, long before, and in fact, he was preaching in the United States of America before there was, before there was, it was just colonies. He was instrumental in, in a great revival here. And one of the things that he would do is he would implore people to imagine themselves in both places. One is a place full of people who were called, Whitfield says, to deny themselves and to follow Christ, and they obeyed the call. That place is filled with the praise of Jude 25. People who are forever singing an everlasting chorus of the the dominion and the majesty and the glory of God. And they see him face to face. He dwells with them and they with him in unending peace and unity. So imagine yourself there, Whitfield said. Then imagine the other place. There There is no trace of God's love there. People are selfish, disobedient, and joyless. They don't sing songs. In fact, it's right to say there's nothing good at all there. And Whitfield's question is very simply, where would you rather spend an unending series of days? Start now. Keep proclaiming the majesty of God. Live joyfully under his dominion. Submit to his authority. So the letter ends by saying that this this has been true of God before all time. That's how the letter ends. Has been now and will forever be. It's another way of saying that God has always been and will always be glorious. The truth is, and sometimes you can do this and sometimes you can't, but people will very simply be put in two categories. Those who see the glory of God and receive him as their prize and those who refuse him and they will get exactly what they wish. A life without the kingship of God. Now 
knowing this, let's be people who are entirely given to the glory of God. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I haven't been, I need to start, start now. Friend, do not delay another millisecond. If you're saying, I have done that, but I feel like I have tripped up a little bit, like maybe I have begun a stumble, I need a fresh start. To you, God offers a fresh start this morning. Take it. He's holding it out for you right now. Take it. Make this your fresh start. If you don't know where to start, go back to that list in verses 21 to 23. Just start there. But mainly just say this. This is how you start. You say, God, make me blameless before you by the blood of Jesus Christ. Say, I want to grab hold of you and I'm receiving your promise right now that you will grab hold and never let go of me. And then ask him to teach you to hold him tightly. If you ask him, that's a promise that God will always answer for your good And I think with some really practical ways, if you just say, I want to cling more tightly to you, teach me how to do it, I believe that very day God will teach you about that. Put put me to the test on that. Try me on that. God is glorious. But friends, he's so kind. He's an available God. He is not some God far away, fed up with this world, disgusted with what he sees so that he has removed himself. He draws near to anyone who seeks him. So seek him. He is always seeking you. And let us be, through reading this book, a people who contend for our common salvation through worship. If you want to just the one way, how do we contend together? We praise God. We sing of him together. We encourage one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together. We rebuke one another where it's needed. We hold one another up in prayer. But mainly, we worship God. We worship with such a white-hot intensity that everything else is burned out of this place. That's the invitation of Jude. Today, tomorrow, forever, and ever, and ever to worship. Let's thank God for this book. Let's thank God for this. And let's ask him to make us do it. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your servant, Jude, who was the earthly brother of Christ. We thank you for this man's faithfulness, for the Holy Spirit writing this book through him, for the Spirit for preserving it through the history of the church, for faithful men and women who have seen it through the millennia, and for the gift of being able to hold it in our hands and to learn from it today. Make us a worshiping people caring only about your glory, caring chiefly about the unending praise of your name, sober-mindedly considering the alternative. 
for those that have been drawn out of that darkness and given a view of glorious light. We give you praise. And for those we know who maybe still live in darkness, use us in any way you want. Bring them into light. For those who appear like they might be stumbling, we pray that their promise, their confession was once true. May they return to Christ. And again, may we do anything that you would have us to do in making that possible. May we be a worshiping people who are so joyous in you. Any hint of anything that opposes you is pushed out. To the praise of your name, we lift our voices. Amen. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.